first of all, let me extend my uh, welcome to all of you and thank you for, uh, for being here. Uh, last night, uh, I was picked at a little bit uh, with respect to uh, my age. Uh, actually, I'm grateful that God has allowed me to live 57 years and uh, have uh, basically good health and enjoy all the things that come with that. Uh, every stage of life has been good uh, to this point, and I pray that all of you will have that same joy and experience as well. But the fact is, I am 57, so <clears throat> that means that for almost all of you, not every one of you, but for almost all of you, I could be your dad. I'm old enough to be your father. And so I want to take the posture of a dad this morning and talk to you uh, like you are my sons and daughters because uh, you're in college. Uh, in a few years, uh, you'll be moving out of college. Uh, most of you will get married. And as you do that, you're going to be confronted with an issue. Where am I going to go to church? Where am I going to join my life in terms of a local fellowship. And most of us, and I was no different when I was your age, we want to find a church just like the church we came from. At least many of us do because we had a good experience. It was a warm and uh, welcoming place. We were comfortable there. But the fact is, you won't find a church just like your home church. Churches are all different in terms of their makeup, personality, the way they do things. Furthermore, you're actually raising the, the wrong question. You should not be asking, where can I find a church like my home church? Rather, you should be asking, where can I find a church that is biblically faithful? Where can I find a church that is striving hard to be a New Testament church that operates under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and does all that it does based upon the teachings of an infallible and inerrant Bible. Now, there are a lot of places we could go to try to get that model in the Scriptures. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission passage. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the church, where in verses 40 through 47 you have almost this ideal picture of the church in its pristine purity in its infancy. Uh, Dahadi, a while ago, spoke from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, another great passage that gives us a perspective on what a faithfully functioning biblical community looks like. But there's another passage that is often neglected, uh, and that's the text I want us to look at this morning. And what I'm going to do is read the passage, make seven biblical observations from that text, and then after that, make seven applications to your life and to my life that can guide us again in locating ourselves and joining ourselves to the kind of church that is faithful to the Word and is indeed going to be used then by God uh, greatly for His glory. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is our text. If you would turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 1 through verse 10, a biblical portrait of a healthy Ecclesia. Uh, John MacArthur says this is a church that has all the right stuff. And I think he's exactly correct because what you see here are the essentials for any biblically faithful functioning fellowship. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul Silvanus, who was Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and let me kind of paraphrase it to give you the thrust of it, your work which proceeds from your faith, your labor which is proceeding or the result of your love, and your steadfastness or your perseverance which is the result of of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you in four ways. Number one, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And 
you became imitators, mimics of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you then became an example. Note the pattern. They first imitated, now they're examples to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. A very remarkable statement on any measure. Verse 9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, uh, the verb tense there means a decisive once for all turn, how you turned once and for all to God from idols to serve present tense. So you turned once and for and all from idols, but now you continually serve the living and true God and to wait continuously, present tense, to continually wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is a biblical portrait of a healthy ecclesia? What will we see in that kind of church? Seven things I want to show you very quickly this morning. Number one, it knows its identity in Christ. It knows its identity in Christ. Verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He mentions Silas and Timothy because they were involved with him on the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17 when he evangelized the people at Thessalonica. Thessalonica was their geographical location, but that's not what I'm interested in here because he says to the church of the Thessalonians in, here's your spiritual location, here is your spiritual identity in God who is our Father and, and as Dr. Moore pointed out last night, the full, glorious, majestic title of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom both flow grace and peace. God the Father. God is our Father. That's one of the beautiful things about the Gospel, that every ethnicity, every race is brought together under one Father, and you need to be a part of a church that rejoices in the goodness and the greatness of a God that we can actually call our Father. Today, among feminists, among some radical secularists, the idea of God as Father is deemed inappropriate. Uh, it's misogynistic, it's, it's sexist, it's, it's patriarchal, it's not something that is going to appeal to a woman. And they act as if this is some kind of old traditional idea that people have always had. The fact of the matter is, in the first century, when Paul told believers that they could call God their father, that was a radical idea. The mystery religions... Uh, all of the various cults in the area that exalted sexuality in worshiping and had female deities coming out their ears literally to say, no, 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 no. The God that we worship is Father. The God that we worship relates to us as a Father. It was a totally unique and foreign idea. Now let me say this, for some of you here this morning, when you think of God as Father, that's not necessarily a good idea. Perhaps you have a, an experience similar to my wife who was born into the home of alcoholic parents and then they divorced and then she spent over a decade in a children's home and when we got married, her father did not even show up to our wedding. And so when you begin to think of Father, you think, oh, that's not really a warm feeling for me. That's not really a positive idea for me. But let me remind you, this Father is a good Father. This father is a great father. This is the kind of father who makes a promise to you in Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You are located spiritually through Christ in God the Father and, of course, in the Lord. That speaks of his deity. Jesus, that's his human name. Christ, that is His office, as Messiah, as the Anointed One. You are located in God the Father, a good Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, a great Savior. You want to be a part of a church 
that is very theocentric and Christocentric in the way that it does work, the way it does worship, the way it does life. Secondly, you want to see a church that prioritizes the spiritual essentials. It prioritizes the spiritual essentials. Verse 2, he enters into a prayer of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly. Uh, Note those words there, always, all, constantly. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And why was Paul thankful for what was taking place at Thessalonica? Well, he points out three things. Remembering before our God and Father, number one, your work, which is proceeding from your faith, Your labor, which has the idea of hard work and toil, which is the result of your love. And thirdly, your perseverance, your steadfastness of hope as a result of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one man said you say it like you could translate like this, your work, which proceeds from your faith, your labor, which proceeds from your love, your steadfastness or your patience or your endurance, which proceeds from your faith. And so here is a church that I believe had in place the right things. They were emphasizing the right things. And one of the amazing things you will learn as you walk through these ten verses is there's not a single word in these verses about the size of the church. There's not a single word in these verses about buildings or budgets or youth camp or Bible study. None of that's there. But what is there is the fact that this was a community of brothers and sisters that had come together. And when you looked at that fellowship, you could say, look at the great faith they have in the Lord. Look at how they love one another. Look at how hopeful and expectant they are because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. And we want to join ourselves to churches that are prioritizing the most important things. Are buildings important? Well, of course they are. We've got to have some place to meet. And our budget's essential? Of course they are. We've got to pool our resources for the building of the kingdom. But ultimately, you can have gorgeous, magnificent buildings. You can have a lot of money. And spiritually, you can be as dead as a hammer. And so what you want to look for is a community that has great faith, that has great love, and that is hopeful because they know in the end our God wins. And so, know your identity in Christ. Prioritize the spiritual essentials. Number three, it thinks continually on the unmerited love of God. It thinks continually on the unmerited love of God. In other words, it never gets over the fact that they are indeed the object of God's gracious, electing, redeeming love. Now, there's a very important connection that you have to see here in verse 4 because it looks back both to verses 2 and 3, and it also looks forward to verse 5 as well. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit and also in full conviction. Now, here's the connection that you need to see. Faith, love, and hope are the result of their election. And their election is given evidence and took place by and came into fruition by the preaching of the gospel. In other words, their being chosen by God results then in a life of faith and love and hope. And their being chosen by God came to fruition in their life's experience through the preaching of the gospel. Now, we live in a time where issues like uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are much debated, at least in the circles that many of us run in. And uh, you have people that have allergic reactions to things like sovereignty and predestination and election and foreknowledge and calling. In fact, recently I was with someone and he said, well, I just don't believe in predestination. To which I simply responded, well, then you don't believe the Bible. 
He said, what do you mean? I said, well, the word predestination is in the Bible like several times. And the word election is like in the Bible several times. And the idea of calling is in the Bible like a lot of times. And the idea of foreknowledge is in the Bible. So if you reject all those things, understand you're rejecting the Word of God. Now, having said that, so you say, so you believe all that? Well, of course I do. It's in the Bible. The Bible also speaks very clearly to the fact that no one enters into the family of God apart from the hearing of the gospel. And no one enters into the family of God apart from repentance of their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the hearing of the gospel. And so I want to challenge you this day to try your best to stay what I call biblically balanced when it comes to these theological issues. In fact, I often use the analogy that on one hand, I am going to hold on to the sovereignty of God and I am not going to let go. On the other hand, I'm going to hold on to the responsibility of humanity to repent and believe the gospel, and I'm not going to let go. Now, I may not be able to reconcile all of that. In fact, I've not yet met the person who can. Uh, The only person I believe that's capable of doing that is God, and maybe when we get to heaven, he'll tell us how he does it. He may not. That's his business. I don't know. But this much I do know. You deny the sovereignty of God, and you're going to flirt with heresy. And you deny the fact that men are responsible to repent and believe the gospel in order to be saved and, as the Bible says, to confirm their election and you'll be good for nothing. And if your theology doesn't motivate you to get off your tail and get out there and share the gospel and get out there and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you've got a bad, defective, unbiblical theology. There are too many people that want to sit around trying to split the hairs of five-point Calvinism, but they won't get off their backside and go out and share the gospel with those who don't give a flying flip about Calvinism, but they certainly need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. And so there's a balance there that we maintain. I'm looking for a church like that. And if I go to a church and they are poo-pooing election and predestination and sovereignty, I'm not joining it. And if I go to another church and all they want to do is talk about the five points of the tulip and all they want to talk about is John Gill and John Calvin and J.C. for them means John Calvin instead of Jesus Christ, I ain't joining. Because either kind of group is defective in terms of faithful biblical theology and faithful biblical truth. I'm looking for a church that indeed knows that God is indeed sovereign and in control of all things. And I want to be a part of a church that is passionate and heartbroken for the lost of the world who desperately need to hear the gospel. And here's the deal. If you will just continually meditate and think on the unmerited love of God that you absolutely do not deserve, but that He has graciously extended to you, you'll find that balance that you need to have in your thinking and your theology. Number four, a biblical portrait of a healthy ecclesia, it keeps the gospel at the center. He says there in verse 4, For you know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel... Now, I would point out that either the word gospel or the word word occurs four times in this passage. In verse 5, twice. In verse 6 and in verse 8. How important was the gospel to Paul? He only used the word 60 times in his 13 letters. And so he says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you and it came in a fourfold manner. He says it came not only, number one, in word, but it also came, number two, in power. It came, number three, in the Holy Spirit, and it came, number four, with full conviction. Now, it's interesting. If I had written this, I would not have put the Holy Spirit in the third position of these four characteristics. I'd either put it first or last for emphasis, and yet he doesn't do that. He says it came in word, power, Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Why does he do that? Because I think he is trying to help us understand that it is the Holy Spirit who gives power to the Word, and it is the Holy Spirit who brings about full conviction in our lives. And so this gospel, 
This word about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a perfect atoning sacrifice. By the way, this is for free. It's not in my notes. You find out if you are looking at a church. Does that pastor, do those elders, does that confession of faith affirm that Jesus Christ died as our penal substitute? In other words, in His death on the cross, did He bear in His body the full weight and full penalty of my sin? Did He indeed, in His death on the cross, bear in my place the wrath and the judgment of God? And if they begin to back up, if they begin to shuffle their feet, if they begin to say, well, you know, you need to find another church. Some of you will remember last summer that there was a controversy with respect to a Presbyterian denomination who decided that they could not have in their hymn book the song by Keith and Kristen Getty, In Christ Alone. Because in that song it says, when on the cross as Jesus died, the what? The wrath of God was satisfied, and they said, no, we, we, we can't go down that road. No, that, that, that conjures up the ideas of a mean, vengeful father that's pouring out and giving a beating to his stupid, dumb, compliant son, and we can't do that. Well, I got news for you. The Presbyterians have the problem, not the Gettys. And that song is absolutely rock solid in terms of affirming what the Bible clearly teaches Jesus did. If you doubt that, then you go read on our break Isaiah 53, where it is crystal clear that the Father was pleased to crush His Son. In other words, God indeed killed His Son so He would not have to kill you or me. And he poured out his judgment on him that he would not have to pour out his judgment on you and me. And that is at the very heart and soul of the gospel. And if you begin to attend a church and you find out that they are nervous about that, they are hesitant about that, they want to back off from that, you need to probably find another church because they are weak at best on the gospel. And they may even deny it outright if you keep digging and get underneath the surface of where they're coming from. No, a faithful church will keep the gospel at the center. Number five, it also raises up and follows the right role models. It raises up and follows the right role models. He says there again in verse 5, Our gospel came to you in word and power, the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators. We get our word mimic from that word. We became, you became imitators, first of all, of us and of the Lord. I'll come back and speak to that very quickly. For you received the word in much affliction. They did receive the word through persecution or during a time of persecution, but it did not stop them. It did not cause them to be depressed. It did not cause them to, to run away. No, you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. There's a, there's a chain here. Do you see it? Christ, Paul, the Thessalonians, Macedonia, and Achaia. Christ sets the ultimate example. Paul followed Christ. Then Paul comes to Thessalonica, and the Thessalonians, they follow Paul. And then as a result of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians, the Macedonians and the Achaeans are following uh, uh, Paul, who followed Christ. And you've got this beautiful connection that takes place there. Now, this is interesting to me. Paul says there that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting order. Why didn't he say you became imitators of Christ and of us? And the answer is because the first thing they saw was Paul. That's why Paul can say, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So a couple of things that we can think about quickly. Number one, who are your heroes and who do you imitate? Who are your heroes and who do you imitate? We all have heroes. I've got them. You've got them. And who are the kind of people that you aspire 
to be like? Who are the kind of people that you want to be like? And the good question to ask is, am I aspiring to be like the right role models or not? For me, didn't realize it at the time, but I do now in reflection, one of my role models was a man that had a fifth grade education and was a farmer in Douglasville, Georgia, but that man was my granddaddy. And because of the impact and the influence of a man that I really did look up to, just didn't realize until God took him when I was about 12 years old, suddenly with a heart attack, just how much I admired him, how much I looked up to him. And the fact of the matter is, I do what I do today because of the major impact of a grandfather that set before me a marvelous example of what it meant to be a man of God. He had no high school degree. He had no college education. He didn't have a Ph.D. But i tell you what, he's one of the most godly persons, I believe, that's ever walked this planet. Who do I like up to in terms of imitation? I had a mother. She had a high school education, but that was it. But my mother was one of the most godly, godly, godly women that you would ever meet in your life. My mother, in all of the years that I know her, I never heard her say, I want, W-A-N-T. It was always, what do you want? Whatever makes you all happy will be fine with me. She was the quintessential servant. And I looked up to her, and I admire her. And now that she's gone, I miss her. But my grandfather, my mother, had great shaping influences in my life. Yes, there's some ministers that have done the same thing. The question I put again before you is, who are you following? But now here's the second question. Who's following you? Who's following you? And as they follow you, what are they seeing? You see, just as we all have role models, I don't care who you are this morning, you have people for whom you are a role model. And he says here in this text that after becoming imitators of Paul and Christ, they then became examples for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. People do watch you. People do eyeball you. People do pay attention to you. And it may be a little brother. It may be a little sister. It may be people where you are living now in your dorms or your apartments. But there are people that admire you and look up to you. What are they seeing? And can you draw a line like Paul does from yourself to Paul to Jesus? You will only be the right role model if you're following the right role models. You will only be the right role model if you're following the right role models. No, a healthy church raises up uh, and follows the right role models. You know, when I was uh, uh, sitting where you sit, there was a popular movement. It continued on a few years later. It kind of died out. But that, that movement was wearing a bracelet that had on it the initials WWJD. You're at least familiar with that. What would Jesus do? And, and I had a number of friends that, that made fun of that. I had a number of friends that said, well, you never know what he's going to do. He always did the unexpected. And they said all these kind of goofy things. And, but then I had an a, a, a opportunity to listen to N.T. Wright. Now, N.T. Wright's a big dog over in Great Britain as far as being a theologian. His book on the resurrection is, is, is you know, uh, a magnum opus. It's stellar. It's one of the classics. And I was listening to him, and he was making fun of Americans, which, which is a good thing to do because we are easy to make fun of. And wait until uh, Mr. Thomas, I mean, Steve Timmis gets at us later today. And, and you missed my pun, and I'm sorry you missed it. Uh, but uh, I, I thought it was funny. Anyway, um, he was talking about the WWJD bracelet and how he always thought it was a really dumb, silly, stupid thing until he had teenagers. And he said, all of a sudden, I didn't think asking the question, what would Jesus do, was all that dumb anymore. In fact, he said, I would rejoice if my children, every time they were confronted with a significant decision, would ask the question, well, what would the Lord Jesus do? Of course, you can ask the question and still do you no good if you don't know the book, to tell you what Jesus would do. But the fact of the matter is, Paul basically affirms that idea when he says, 
follow me as I follow Christ. You became imitators of me and the Lord. Number six, a healthy church. It focuses on the work of evangelism and missions. It focuses on the work of evangelism and missions. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say a thing. That word sounded means to blast like a trumpet. So their faith in the Lord had gone forth like the blast of the sound of a trumpet. And indeed, it had gone everywhere throughout Macedonia and Achaia, basically modern-day Greece. And this is an amazing statement to me, brothers and sisters. He said, it went forth so that we need not say anything. Wow. This church was being so faithful in evangelism. This church was being so faithful in terms of missionary outreach that Paul said, I wouldn't change a thing. I can't say a thing. There's no need for anyone to say anything because what you're doing says it all. So coming back again, you find a church that is faithful evangelistically and faithful in terms of getting the gospel to the nation. Finally, and then we'll see our quick applications, it longs for the return of the king. It longs for the return of the king. He says there in verse 9, pick up there and then into verse 10, for they themselves, that is the folks in Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Well, how did the gospel work in Thessalonica? Well, as I emphasized earlier, he says there how you turned decisively once and for all to God from idols to continually serve a God who is living, not dead, and to serve a God who is true and not false, and to wait expectantly, to wait uh, with, with great anticipation for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us or sets us free from the wrath, the judgment that is to come. Some have pointed out that that's the gospel in reverse. He delivered us from the wrath of come, uh, to come by raising Him from the dead, and now we wait for Him to come from heaven because that's where He has ascended and where He is. And so in a sense, Paul kind of says as we look at this text, what is it that you ought to be? You ought to be a hopeful, expectant people. You ought to be a joyful people who are working and loving and sharing and waiting and longing for Him. You are working, you're loving, you're sharing, you're waiting, and you're longing for Him. Now, how does that then flesh itself out for you where you are today and perhaps in the near future? An observation for my seven points. Number one. You find a church that emphasizes the gospel as the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. You find a church that understands that from the beginning to the middle and to the end, it is all about the gospel. It's not that I am saved by faith, but now I please God by my works. God is pleased by your good works, but good works should be the natural outgrowth and the natural overflow of being a gospel-saturated person. Being gospel-saturated in that kind of a way will keep you from getting infected with the disease of legalism. And unfortunately, many of you, I certainly did, grew up in the Deep South where there was this confusion about what it means to live the Christian life. And it was like, well, Jesus saved me by faith, and, 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 but now the rest of it is uh, uh, my working to earn His approval, my working to make sure He doesn't get mad at me and zap me in some kind of a way. And that's just absolutely a jaundiced understanding of the Christian life. No, the gospel does indeed result in good works, but you don't do the good works because you're afraid, but you do the good works because you're glad. You don't do the good works so that He will love you, you do the good works because He does love you. So easy to illustrate. May the 27th of this year, I will have been married for 36 years. 36 years. 36 wonderful years. And for 36 years, well, at least to 35 and 8 months, I have been faithful to my wife, Charlotte, in the covenant of our marriage. Am I faithful to her 
because I have to be. No. I am faithful to her because I want to be. I am faithful to her because I love her. Is being faithful to my wife a drudgery? No, it is a joy. Is being faithful to her kind of hard work? Well, marriage is hard work, but being faithful to her is simply the overflow of a love life and a love relationship that was given to us as a gift by God. And so I'm not faithful to my Savior because I have to be. I'm faithful to Jesus because I want to be. I, I live a life of gospel gratitude for who He is and what He's done. Find a church that understands the full implications of the gospel. Secondly, find a church that emphasizes regenerate church membership. In fact, to have church membership without regeneration is a oxymoron. There's no such thing. So you want to find a church that is serious about the fact that its fellowship should be made up of born-again people. It goes the extra mile to ensure again that people understand the gospel, that people hear the gospel, and that people are responding to the gospel. In fact, I wouldn't join a church that did not ask me to share my personal testimony of my conversion experience in Jesus. When I was a a little boy, I joined the church at about the age of 10. I did at least go see the pastor, one of the most terrifying experiences of my life, as I went into his office, my feet dangling out of the chair, and he looks at me and says, well, why are you here? And I mean, my mind just blind. I don't know why I'm here. I don't want to be here. My dad may become here uh, I'm, because I'd, I'd, I'd been converted on the previous Sunday night after church. And so in our thing, you go see the pastor. So I saw him. I have no recollection of the conversation. All I know is he said, well, on Sunday you'll walk the aisle and you'll sit on that front row. Miss Askew will come over, give you a card. She'll help you fill it out. When you've done that, you'll come back up and stand by me. Church will vote you in, and then we'll baptize you a week later. You got that? Yes, sir. I, I got that. You say, don't think that was really a good way to take care of you? No, I don't think that was really a good way to take care of me, but that's the way we used to do it. Thank God, your generation, a little bit more, you know, let's this, this really get into what the Bible says. Recognize that, you know, if someone cannot articulate well their understanding of the gospel and testify to an encounter with the living Christ, then there's a problem and, and we need to deal with that. So you want to find a church that so cares about the regenerate nature of its membership that it takes very seriously who gets to, to come in. You say, well, everybody has the right to come in. No, they don't. Where did you get that idea? Well, it's their right. No, 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 no. It's not a right to be a member of a church. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. And you want to have a church that takes very seriously the importance of having its membership made up of born-again believers. That's why, again, I'm so grateful for a number of the, of the churches that I see today that have a lot more people attending than they do members. Most of you probably came out of churches like I did where we had about 500 people that came on Sunday, but we had over 1,000 members. I can remember years ago going to Australia where they actually practiced church membership the way it ought to be practiced. And so I'm at a church, and there was about, oh, I don't know, 200 people that attended on that particular Sunday. So afterwards, I was talking to the pastor, and I said, well, I'm just curious. How many members y'all have? 400, 500? And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind, and he says, we have 80 members, and our membership is renewed annually. I said, say what? He said, we have 80 members, and our membership is renewed annually. I said, well, who are all these other people? They, they, I mean, that, the, these were all guests? And he said, no, most of them are, 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 are pretty regular attenders. But they have not yet entered into, which I'm about to get to, covenantal commitment to our fellowship because in many cases they do not claim to have been born again. And furthermore, when they look at what we um, require of membership, they're, they're, they're not interested. At that time, I was going to a church in Texas that uh, on any given Sunday would uh, profess to have about uh, 6,000 in attendance, 
And we had 25,000 members. And he said, well, where are the 19,000, son? I said, I don't know, and neither does the FBI. And so we, uh, <laughs> we need to be serious about what it means to be a member, which leads me to my third observation, and I could spend a lot of time here, but find a church that emphasizes being a confessional and covenantal community. That emphasizes being a confessional and covenantal community. I wouldn't be a part of a church that did not have a confession of faith that it had on its website, that it pushed out everywhere so everybody, this is who we are, uh, this is what we believe. I wouldn't be a part of a church that did not have a covenant that as you come in as a member, you affirm and you commit yourself to. Which then means that there are some uh, gatherings around our nation. You can call it what you want to, but they're not churches. They're not churches. There's a very popular church in Atlanta. You can join that church by going to their website and just filling out a questionnaire and you're in. There's a church in Houston you can go to. And if you attend, you're considered a member. If you just attend, well, you're a member. Well, well, well do I need to, you don't have to sign anything? We'd like your money. You don't have to sign anything. You just come, you're a member. Well, do, do we then like come? No, no, you just come, you're a member. There's some churches in this state, very popular, very large, over in the Charlotte area. There's no membership. There's no accountability. There's no avenue whereby you would practice church discipline. And again, you say, well, then you're kind of pushing toward the marks of the church. I am pushing toward the marks of the church. And the marks of the church are, as the Reformers said, the word rightly preached, the sacraments are the ordinance properly administered. But then the Baptists and the Anabaptists got it right when they said that you must also include regenerate church membership and church discipline. And if those four things are not in place, and those four things are not being practiced according to the biblical standards, then at best you have a defective church. Sometimes the historians, the, el of the older of our uh, 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 forefathers called it an irregular church. Well, you call it irregular, you want to. I call it defective at best and perhaps not even a church at all. It may be a gathering of people for something, but it's not a church. And so I want to find a church that takes very seriously the covenantal, confessional aspects of what it means to be the body of Christ. Number four, find a church that emphasizes discipleship and mentoring. Find a church that emphasizes discipleship and mentoring. Dahadi's message was so spot on in terms of the fact that we need a church to make a disciple. And you need to be a part of a church that indeed takes discipleship with great seriousness. They take mentoring with great seriousness. One of the things, again, that I love about the students that come to Southeastern is that over and over and over and over and over and over, they will ask, can I find someone that will mentor me? Can I find someone that's older than me? doesn't have to be a lot older than me. Just They're just a little bit ahead of me in the game, but someone that's more mature than I, that I can bring myself underneath them, that they can pour their life into me and mentor me and grow me and mature me. And I would want to be a part of a church that is very intentional in doing discipleship and mentoring. Number five, find a church that emphasizes evangelism and provides training. It emphasizes evangelism and provides training. Now, again, I know that some of you uh, would come back at me and say, well, you know, that's just so canned and programmatic. Uh, you know, uh, sharing the four spiritual laws, sharing uh, the EE presentation, sharing faith presentation, sharing CWT presentation, uh, sharing, as I was taught, the Roman Road presentation, uh, that's just, you know, all so canned and tried. And, well, let me tell you something. I'd rather you do something than nothing. Okay? And if you're doing nothing, then you're in sin. So I'd rather you do something than nothing. And I'd want to find a church that in some means would help me learn how to more effectively share the faith. I would want to be a part of a church that makes sure I understand what the gospel is. 
and that I know how to present well the gospel to people so that they then, if they walk away and reject what I have to say, they're not rejecting me or some false caricature of Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a fair and accurate and true presentation of the gospel. So find you a church that will help you learn to share your faith. Number six, find a church that focuses on the Great Commission and gives evidence that it is actually doing it. You see, it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to do it. Are you a part of a church that prays for the nations? Are you a part of a church that is sending people to the nations? Are you part of a church that indeed puts its money where its mouth is and they actually make sure that they are sending substantial. And I'm not talking about just giving God a token tip. I'm talking about it's actually part of their sacrificial way of doing church that they are funneling funds to get people to the nations. One of my sons is a member of a church. Over 25% of their budget goes to international missions. 25%. And it's a big church. So we're talking about a lot of money. And it permeates the church. It characterizes the church. It is the personality of the church. What Matt Carter shared last night doesn't happen by accident. But when those at the top have a vision for being used by God to get the gospel to the 6,000-plus unreached people groups, the 3.5 billion that as of right now will be born, live, die, and the overwhelming majority of them will go to hell and never have an accurate presentation of the gospel given to them. When that becomes the passion of your people, it will also impact the way you touch your Jerusalem and your Judea and your Samaria. And again... I would not be a part of a church that did not wear on its sleeves, we are a great commissioned people. We pray for the nations. We give to reach the nations. We pray that God raises up people to send to the nations. The nations, the nations, the nations, the nations, they matter to us. And by the way, in His amazing grace, God's bringing the nations to us. They are flooding. Where you all are in school, there are so many different ethnies there, so many different nationalities there. You've got a chance to be an international missionary right now where you are. What are you doing? What are you doing right now where you are to be a faithful international missionary because God in amazing grace has brought the nations to your doorstep, they're in your dorm, they're where you eat and go to class. And here's the deal. They are most in most cases lonely. They're in most cases isolated. They're just looking for someone to love on them. And once you start loving them, the barriers come down and the opportunity to tell them about Jesus is readily available. Finally, find a church that is happy, holy, and hopeful. Find a church that is happy, holy, and hopeful. You say, so you wouldn't join a curmudgeon church. No, would not join a curmudgeon church. You wouldn't join a church where everybody looks like they've been vaccinated with pickle juice. No, I would not join a church where everybody looks like they've been vaccinated with pickle juice. Unless God were to bodily transport me into such a fellowship. There's a Greek word, harpazo. It means to rapture. If all of a sudden God put me there like I'm in just like, you know, like in Star Trek and I'm transported, okay, I guess it sure will, but I sure, you know, okay. But other than that, and again, now I can share this with you because I've got the perspective that most of you don't have. Listen, life's too short to be a part of a grouchy, mean, curmudgeon church. Just too short. And why, you know, well, I want to be an agent of change. Well, you know, you can be an agent of change by beating your head against a concrete wall week after week after week, and the change will be, you'll be bloody and battered, but you go right ahead. You just go right ahead. I had a friend, and I'll close with this. He um, picked me up one day. I was going to speak at his church. And he told me that he was going to be preaching the next week in view of a call at a church that, um, eh, let's just say again, I'd have to be harpazoed to go and pastor that church. And so I said, well, you know that that church is as mean as the devil. And, and they eat up pastors like crazy. You know, they're like Pac-Man. Dang, 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 dang. And, you know, I know y'all don't know Pac-Man, but he used to be pretty awesome in the day. And so, I mean, he was the best we had. 
And so I said, so, 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 so he said, so, so you, you, you don't think I should go? And I said, well, I wouldn't go. He said, well, a friend told me that if I go there, uh, my wife will go to bed crying every night. He said, you think it's that bad? I said, no. Worse than that, you'll go to bed crying every night. <laughs> and he said, well, I just believe God's told me to go. And I said, well, I'm not God. So if, if God tells you to go, then you have to go. But I should make sure that it's God telling you to go. Well, about three years later, we were sitting over here in the old Charlie's. It's now closed down. And we were sitting on the side, and he looked at me, and he said, you see that concrete wall right there? I said, uh-huh. He said, Pastor, my church is like beating your head against that concrete wall every single day. And I said, yeah. Didn't somebody about three years ago tell He said, shut up. <laughs> and he's not there anymore. Here's my point. Life is short. I don't say that. The Bible says that. James says it's a mist. It's a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. It's too short to waste your life, to quote John Piper. It's too short to waste your life in a defective religious club that gives virtually no evidence of being a biblically faithful, authentic church. Is there a place for church revitalization? Absolutely. But there at least needs to be there a flicker of light and a ray of hope. If not, then find another one or start your own. Let this be your manual. And then you, by God's grace, build a healthy, functioning, faithful, biblical community that can indeed make an impact where you live and can even go beyond that and make an impact around the world for King Jesus. It's interesting that this passage ends with our reflecting upon the coming again of our Savior. Growing up, I used to hear this statement all the time. I didn't think it was true then. I later found that was absolutely not true. You know, some people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. You ever heard that? not true the people who are the most heavenly minded are the most earthly good that's why Paul says set your mind on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God you be heavenly minded and God will use you greatly down here in and through his church for his glory Heavenly Father, I thank you for the church at Thessalonica. I thank you for the way they responded to the gospel as it came there. They received it, and then, Lord, they took it in, and it became the very fiber and DNA of who they were. As a result of that, Paul could say, your example is spreading like wildfire all over Macedonia and Achaia. The way that the gospel is going forth from you, I don't need to say a thing. Just keep doing what you're doing. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that we will be part of uh, of churches like that that are indeed so faithful to the gospel, so faithful to the word, that from heaven you could look down and say, just keep doing what you're doing. You're a fellowship that's honoring my son. So Lord, give us wisdom. May we ask good questions, hard questions, the right questions, and Lord, thereby be a part of a fellowship, a community of faith, that's really making a difference in this world for our Savior. It's in His name that we pray.